Hi, I'm Charlie, and this is Above the Cloud, the podcast all about the business of local, brought to you by the Local Search Association. So today's episode is a roundtable with our analyst team, myself, Mike Boland, and Neil Polachek. Mike and Neil were moderators at the recent PLACE conference, which happened October 15th and 16th in Austin, Texas. And I just got a couple quick takeaways from them on what stood out from the conference. And then later we get into a conversation about kind of how investor views on high-flying companies like Uber and DoorDash and, of course, the infamous WeWork are changing and how, you know, making money is cool again, that whole conversation. I wrote a blog about it recently, and I thought it would be fun if Mike, Neil, and I kind of picked apart uh, what we talked about in that post. So anyway, that's just a little bit of what we talk about today. I hope you enjoy it, and here we go. Last week, we had our place conference. You guys were the chief moderators, along with Dan Hyde, who's not on the, the podcast today. Why don't each of you share one big takeaway from the place conference? Well, I, this this whole notion of, uh, well, it started in Europe, GDPR, and then uh, now California, the CCPA will go into effect uh, January 20th. I, I learned a couple things. One of the big differences is, is that GDPR is opt in mm -hmm. and CCPA is opt out. Big difference. Those are big differences in, in terms of consumer privacy. That, that in Europe, you have to, you, people have to say, yes, I want to be, I want you to track me essentially. And here it's like, do you want us to track you? No, I don't. And you opt out. So I think that's, that's interesting. The other thing that's interesting is that what a lot of the business leaders we talked to at the place conference were doing, they were trying to get in front of a, a universe where there are 50 different state regulations. Right. Because that's a, that's a big problem for these folks and for everybody. Right, you end up having more lawyers than engineers, I think. Well, and like, okay, so if I'm now, if I travel, I was in Des Moines, Iowa yesterday. Mm -hmm. If I travel to Des Moines and I go onto a site, there are different rules if I go on as I'm physically in Des Moines than, it's a, than if I'm physically in California. There are all these things. So right. I was quite uh, impressed with kind of the proactive leadership a lot of those business leaders were taking in going to Washington and trying to get the message out there that there needs to be a federal approach to this privacy stuff. Because a state-by-state -state approach will make it really challenging. Well, it's a, it's an absolute the good thing is that CCPA is, is probably relatively, well, I, I, I don't know what relatively, like there's some law that passed in Nevada recently that is not as, um, uh, has, has fewer requirements. So, so the California regulation is, is at the robust end of the spectrum. Might be, yeah. California will be the most stringent. Yeah. Uh, the right. fact that California will be the most stringent is actually interesting because it's such a large market so that anyone who wants to operate there is going to have to comply. And therefore, they're not going to want to have different systems for right. California and everywhere else. So they'll raise everything up to that stringent level of California kind of across the board. Does that become the de facto? Um, it's kind of like a de facto federal until we get to federal regulations. Because right. well, you want to comply with the most stringent and then everything yeah, there else you go. below well, that is going to be sort of automatic. The largest economy in the world, yeah. you know, if that's the state, and the economy that's defining the regulation, that's probably a good thing. So anyway, yeah. I was 
I thought that part of the conversation uh, across a couple of days was really interesting. Um, well, that sort of plays into the, there's this myth that, that businesses don't want to be regulated. I mean, they don't, but what they really want is certainty and they right, want, right. And, and so yeah. they're, they're pragmatic. If they see the reg regulations inevitable, they, they want to push for the most. They, they want to steer it. And that's yeah. one thing that Duncan McCall from Place uh, IQ was talking about. And he's one of those leaders that, Neil, you referred to as being very proactive, going to Washington. And I think part of that is one thing he argued for is like, until we get there, federal regulation is going to take a while. Until we get there, let's self-regulate. And the reason for that is, one, it provides a bridge to that regulation, weeds out the bad actors, et cetera. But then also, um, that, that self-regulation can be used as a model. It can hand it over to Washington and say, look, we already did all the hard work. Right. Now just turn it into to law. That way they control the narrative. That, that was all really interesting. But what was also interesting about all this regulation stuff around location information and privacy is that uh, as we talk, that a lot of these companies from, from where I sit look kind of similar. A lot of location data. They've developed some really interesting analytical tools that sit on top of that data. That's kind of their, their unique selling proposition is their different kind of analysis of the data and use, of, use cases for the data. But, was, but one of the things that was interesting is that I think one of the reasons there hasn't been more consolidation in this space and more sort of uh, merging of these companies, because I think they all need scale, they all need uh, additional size, is that the uncertainty around all this regulation stuff yeah. forces anybody thinking about consolidating a space to say, wait a second, I might be consolidating a space that, I don't know, could go away. That would be a bad choice. So, so they are linked, right? This yeah, yeah. So once the regulation certainty is in place, then we will see a wave of consolidation. That's what you're predicting? That's what I, that's exactly right, Charlie. Okay. And so we're going to see this go on for a while until there's some broader led uh, policy. The argument for certainty, which will then breed investor confidence, is that's exactly right. Mike, uh, why don't you share one theme that jumped out for you? Yes. So that, everything we just went over, was really the macro th theme that threaded throughout a lot of the conference. One thing that was like a little bit off that topic, but I thought was just super interesting, was Eric Hadley at iHeartMedia right. was talking about the opportunity for kind of audio content, and that's podcasts, which of course have been become so much um, so popular. I guess it's kind of meta talking about it on, on the podcast. But anyway, it's interesting because what he, he referred to it as share of ear. I like the, that way of thinking about it because our visual stimulus and visual media has just become so saturated. Share of ear could still be a green field. Even though pod, podcasts have become so popular, that like inventory, if you will, is growing by the fact that, you know, AirPods, for example, sold 25 million units last year right. more and more people are walking around with this kind of pervasive all day you know device in their ear and the interesting thing is you know most of that time it's it's actually idle like every once in a while you get a ping you'll get a phone call maybe you'll be listening to music but there's all of that other time that's this again share of ear that could be a greenfield 
one other just quick example of something they're doing, which I thought I, I'd never heard of. That's the cool thing when you go to these conferences after we've been to like hundreds of them, you hear something new. Um, they're, they're basically tying the top of the funnel, the bottom of the funnel. That's not new. When you're talking about something like audio, radio, or podcast, which is an upper funnel awareness-based medium, and then something like search, which is lower funnel. And the way they're tying those two things together is they found, based on tracking user behavior, that after someone listens to a podcast, they'll go and Google like the subject of that podcast or the product or perhaps something that was on an ad break. And sometimes that leads to a dead end. So what they're doing is they're refining their SEO in those markets for those keywords after a given podcast airs. So then when that user goes and searches for that thing, there's a higher chance that that product or that topic will surface in search results. You mean like Blue Apron or like the actual... That's sure, whatever, podcast whatever. Advertiser, yeah. yeah, yeah, whatever the ad break was, yeah. they will do SEO in that market in the days following the airing of the podcast to just tie those things together. Yeah, the interesting is just the, the podcast advertising has such um, high retention or high, yep. the, the, the lack of skip through. Yeah, he uh, mentioned that too. He mentioned that the average podcast users will listen to seven per week and most of those will listen all the way through. And his right. point was there are a few ad-supported media that have that much of a listen-through rate. Right, and, and, and if you sort of think about how you listen to podcasts, it's, it's almost always, you know, you're, you may be doing something else at the gym. Or, yeah, and it just kind of plays and it's just idle. And, you know, so I've heard, God knows, I've heard enough about Blue Apron. and uh, you, you can know. skip 15 seconds, right. you know, with just one button. Yeah, um, so they never do made that, it easy to do that, but I still don't do it. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. And he, he said people don't do it because they end up missing the content. Yeah. Right? yeah. They not do it quite the right time and then they... Right, and then you go back and then you know, uh, it's just a pain. Yeah, it's it better to listen. That well. It's not a great experience yeah. and it's kind of... I think they're really onto something and I think that they have, what, 850 local, local yeah. radio stations? Mm-hmm. No, they're huge. And radio is still the, most of the revenue, but but the growth is coming from other forms of audio, podcasts. Presence in outdoor as well. I mean, it's basically Clear Channel. Clear Channel is, that's, that's iHeart. It's starting to bubble up this conversation around kind of a shift in investor priorities around sort of moving away from these high growth unicorns, a term I think is pretty imprecise, but I think people sort of know what it means. And, uh, you know, the WeWork's Never IPO'd, but it was sort of like the the poster child for uh, out of control unicorn or unicorn wannabe, whatever it was. Out of control capitalism, really. Yeah. To back to okay, what are your unit economics? How are you going to make money? When are you going to make money? And it's interesting to sort of talk about what's going to be the shake out of that. And sort of in the area we cover, small business software, you know, there's sort of examples of both of you know the companies that maybe have have a lot of hype, maybe a messianic CEO and huge growth ambitions, but perhaps no real path to profitability. And then more companies that build great products, focus on CAC, focus on LTV, focus on the metrics that are important, grow smartly. So we, we sort of represent both, but kind of what the fallout will be of kind of the crash that's been happening with, I mean, Uber hasn't crashed, but its IPO was disappointing. It's widely talked about as a business that has no prospects to make money. The WeWork was a fiasco. I don't think there's any other way to describe that. Well, Amazon kind of, I guess, set the precedent for that, for high growth, you know, low, um, low profit. But um, I think that the, you know, the market as, as the market is starting to get a little more stringent these days, I think has just lost his tolerance for that level of risk for some of these unproven players that are trying to do that. I yeah. think a blue apron. Yeah. As, I mean, that was... Well, there's 10 of those. There's like, I don't know if there's actually 10, but there's blue apron and then six I can't 
the names of which I can't. Right, and and that was going to take off. I think did it go IPO, Blue Apron? I'm not sure. I'd have to I check. I don't know that. if it did or didn't, but it's it's had a you know a, a pretty sobering um, fall. Yeah. So I wonder if there. I wonder if some of this is just PR, great PR driven stuff, mm -hmm. and that creates this you know this interest in these companies. What I, what I think about WeWork and, and that situation is, I think what it's really going to foretell is, a, is our boards of directors that are going to take a little bit more responsibility mm -hmm. for where these companies go. Because I, you think about that story, and I'm sorry, we can blame it all on Adam Newman or whatever. And the, the well, he's an easy that. villain. You know, he's a real easy villain. Where's he was an able. on yeah. this thing. And why are they not being vilified in public, on the public square? Because they watched this whole thing. And yeah. they're now about, they're- and they they're just handed them $1.7 billion to go exactly. walk barefoot through Manhattan. And, and, uh, and, and 2,000 people who had some probably little stakes of equity thinking mm -hmm. that they were gonna have a little outcome are gonna be on the street with no severance. I mean, we, you know, we, we watch enough of the politics stuff that you, it's no wonder that some of these, these questions around where we are in capitalism keep cropping up. It's, it's, it's what it was the board doing. Well, yeah, I mean, there was a, there's a clear, governance was one of the totally. failing cited around WeWork is that it had horrible governance. And then that was an issue with Uber as well. So I, I think, you know, there probably will be a reckoning around more, robust governance and less stacking boards with, you know, your pals, et cetera. The other kind of trend that we've seen um, are these, as you put it, kind of messianic founders yes. that like after Steve Jobs, I think Steve Jobs kicked this idea back in that like the founder as, as eclectic and weird they may be yeah. like, you know, is like the, the leading choice to kind of take these companies into the stratosphere. And, and then you've seen that kind of over time, like, I guess, um, validated to a certain degree by some folks like like Jeff Bezos. He's actually a positive example. But then you have Mark Zuckerberg that was working for a while. Now people are questioning him. So I think it's almost like that trend is reversing because you're seeing all these examples of that kind of when that goes wrong. And at a certain stage, you know, the, the paradigm used to be and still is in most circles of business at a certain stage of growth, you kind of turn the reins over the CEO position from the founder who was yeah. the right person in early stages, but isn't the right person to take it into like a hundred million dollar company and then a billion dollar company. And then beyond that, you need right. like, you know, a 50 year old CEO and not this 20 year old kid. Well, and I think bashing the press is cheap often, but I think this is one instance where these are often media creations. That's what I was saying about the PR stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of Kool-Aid being consumed around, around WeWork, and I think the board got caught up in it. You know, I sit on the, I sit as an advisor as well as a board member, and the last board meeting I went to where I'm actually a board member, I asked tougher questions this time than I ever have because I, was, I got more tuned into, I do have a fiduciary responsibility to the board as a board member to ask tougher questions. You're, you're part of the governance of the company. That's right. And it really heightened my awareness to all this stuff, the WeWork stuff. And, and I think that, you know, 
you know, if, 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 if something has let down U.S. corporate America, it is the boards as much it is, as it is the CEOs who run these things. Right. Another, board, interesting, yeah, another interesting angle is uh, who's, who's putting the money in? Because Soft, SoftBank has been catching some heat. Right. Because it's, uh, it's got this $100 billion fund. Actually, I don't have a number in front of me. Vision Fund, I think it's called. And, you know, its track record is not great. I mean, they're, they've been throwing good money after bad at WeWork. Big Uber investor, I believe. Big uh, DoorDash investor, <laughs> sensing a theme at all, and uh, and I think they're getting a little bit of blame for sort of throwing just insane amounts of money at sort of unicornish companies with you know these outsized ambitions, perhaps poorly governed, perhaps led by these messianic leaders, and without real real attention to business models about growth at all costs. And I think there's a reckoning. Okay, one last topic. We posted last week about A.T. Kearney. It's really only, it was just an article. It wasn't a study or anything, but it really had some interesting points in it. And uh, Ben Smith, the uh, founder of Merchant Circle, was one of the authors. And Doug Kalponin. Kip just right. say Doug, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so people who have some, some serious experience yeah. uh, in, in how to sell, how to scale an SMB software business and how to sell software or technology to small businesses. And I thought some of the points they raised were interesting. A couple of them were, yeah, of course, a couple of them were sort of like, oh, yeah, I haven't really looked at it that way. And a couple of them were kind of pushing back at some of the things that we see as, as, as fairly common trends in selling small business software. So a couple of them, and we can just kind of kick around what we think of them. And the one that I thought really made a lot of sense to me was this notion of, think when you think of a very small business, Think about the, when you're trying to sell them an app or whatever it is, think about them like a consumer more than thinking about them like a business. And I think that makes so much sense because you know, I, all of us were, were sort of at small businesses in our own way because we're, we're freelancers. We've got a few different mm -hmm. business activities going on. So we, we buy software ourselves to, to run our businesses. And then you think about a plumber or a hairstylist with one chair or whatever. The, the their ability to sort of spend the time to do a comparison of three or four different products and feature set comparisons and you know all this stuff that maybe larger businesses do just isn't going to happen their their consuming behavior is a lot more like a consumer and I you know that's one reason why uh facebook has become such a penetrated smb marketing vehicle for ad spend mm -hmm. um given that you know one it's it's dead simple but two you know, put yourself in the shoes of some of the personas you just mentioned, they can cognitively wrap their brain around a Facebook yeah. as a promotional vehicle because they use it in their personal lives. So, so at these events that I do, I do, I take these business owners through this sort of six questions. Are you a modern consumer? Because mm -hmm. the point I'm trying to make to them is, is that they are as much about their buyer, they're as much like their buyer or prospect as the prospect is like right. they have amazon prime they look at ratings and reviews they don't like to have bad service they don't like to leave voicemails so in other words we are as much like as business owners we're much like consumers and i totally agree with that notion and you know people often would ask me well how do you segment the small business market and i'd say well it's a segment of 10 million individual segments or 29 million individual segments because we could line up a thousand plumbers 
and get 1,500 different answers to the same question. Uh, but your point is well taken, which is that sometimes uh, two plumbers are less similar than two people of very different businesses, but of similar demographic profile, for example, or you know, stage of business or whatever. So, so there's that. Uh, so yeah, so, and, and I think what that means is just, that sort of leads to a discussion about, well, how do you simplify the sale, you simplify the product itself, the feature set and so on. A couple other things they mentioned, which is they sort of took some issue with the vertical approach, which is getting a lot of positive reception in small business software because of reasons we've talked about a few different times, one of which is you know, the idea to, of being able to focus your product on a specific vertical means you can define a product for that vertical and it's going to be more useful, probably get higher engagement with that small business and so on. But the problem they cite with the vertical approach, which is sort of obvious, is you run out of market a lot faster. <laughs> and yeah. if you really want to scale a business, you have to have a wider net than one specific area. In the selling of this stuff, yeah. you have to have a vertical approach. Yeah. The software may look exactly the same from vertical to vertical. Right. You but might put a different skin on it for each customer yeah. or, or a prospect about, I know the challenges of running yeah. the practice, here they are, is going to earn you a bunch more trust than, hey, I, kn I know you're a dentist. I think, you know, like you don't really know what their challenges are by this software. So I, th I think it's the nuance there is in the selling you have to verticalize, though the product maybe maybe, but it also depends what the product does or what it's. If it's one of these all-in-one yeah, suites, we've talked about this. These all-in-one products, where they break down, is in that sort of industry-specific. Doesn't work for me. Own it, yeah. It, uh, it depends on the vertical too. I think this was even uncovered in uh, Modern Commerce Monitor, where verticalization tends to shine where there is higher degrees of nuance, obviously, but also things that are regulated, like right. healthcare, healthcare, finance. Yeah. Th those those really call for something that's more of a vertical um, focus. Right. right. So that's it. I mean, but I think their point was if you want to become mega big, you know, you can't yep. you can't become yeah, the, giant the, if you're the only, out. yeah if you're only focused it's, on home services. I mean, Service Titan seems to be pushing the that concept at least in terms of the amount of money they're raising but in terms of how big they can get you know that, that point is well taken the other notion quickly was that they said you the channel partnerships simply don't work that you're going to have to sell the product yourself just an interesting point given that the world our sort of ecosystem that we're working with every day that come well, to Uber our all has no direct sales yeah yeah and they rely entirely on channel partners. Well, and they're hardly alone it's one of right. many you know mono name any of the site builders most of the most of listings companies you know they all have their and uh, vendasta you know some of them may have some indirect sales inside for specific areas like enterprise or something like that or maybe direct sales they start out with direct sales to learn how to sell their own product but quickly evolve into a channel partnership because they know they can't. So I didn't quite understand their point with that. And I think their point was simply that well, so orders don't sell your product as well as you can, which is probably true. But I think that's it. There's like how, how you there's obviously the margin compression, but I think it's also the service component of having an intermediary between your brand and the consumer. I think that's that's probably the biggest issue. And both in selling it effectively, but also yeah. servicing it effectively. Right? right, and retaining and having high yeah. you know, customer satisfaction. The issues with channel partners are pretty well defined, which is that, yeah, we've all had conversations with companies that say, I've got all these channel partners and none of them do a damn thing. They're all, you know, we've, they're all disappointing. 
but, but think just, about Microsoft in the tech space. They yeah. have massive channel partners. Oh yeah. It, I mean, Office 365 or whatever they call it now, yeah. going through all these uh, um, managed service providers, small IT shops. Also, like, GoDaddy. You know, GoDaddy channel partners. Yeah. No, and then, you know, Cisco, you get into the IT companies, they're all, they all work for channel partners, everyone. So this is very common. So again, I, you know, I understand that the friction with channel partners and, and the, the trade-offs, but I just simply can't see that if you're going to have a scale business. Well, it, it's ironic. Point two you made about verticals versus non-verticals was they were arguing for a larger total addressable market. Yeah. Point three, it's almost like they're um, counter to that in, you know, without channels, you reduce your total addressable market, right? Yeah, or yeah, basically you're gonna have to sell you, but or or it points to another way of selling, which is more with automation and AI, which is also sure. another point that they made, uh, which gets into a something Neil, you and I will maybe talk about on another podcast because we're gonna be doing a paper on yeah. this whole subject of buy it yourself. Uh, Not do it yourself. Buy it yourself. Not do it yourself. We're very clear on that distinction. We'll talk about that on another podcast. I think we'll have to end it here. Been a fun conversation, gents. Thanks for coming on. See you later, Charlie. Um, Bye, Mike. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining today. So one last thing before we go. The LSA 2020 conference is coming up fast. It's March 16th through the 18th in San Antonio. Why don't you go to locology.com slash LSA-20-20 for information on the event. We've got a great agenda. Hope to see you there. And see you next time on Above the Cloud.